Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's new podcast on law, policy, regulation, and economics. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're joined by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University's School of Law. Hello, Richard. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Adam. Well, I'm looking forward to doing this podcast and the conversations we're going to have in the future. We thought we'd kick it off today with an issue that both you and I have been thinking about and working on for quite some time, uh, the impact of the Dodd-Frank regulations that Congress enacted in 2010. Now, we're now a decade past the financial crisis that inspired Dodd-Frank, and you looked back at it recently in a column for Hoover's online journal, Defining Ideas. Your headline was, The Troubled Legacy of Dodd-Frank. So, Richard, I have to ask... What's so troubling about Dodd-Frank? Well, uh, everything from the, its inception to its execution. Uh, Dodd-Frank essentially was in response to one crisis, and it may well have created the seeds of another. Uh, there is no question that many things went wrong back in 2008, but there's a huge battle as to what it was and a huge battle as to what the remedy might be. Uh, so one of the conventional explanations, which I always distrust, is that they were greed by bankers. And the reason I distrust it, it doesn't distinguish this moment from any other moment in our history. So then what you have to do is you try to figure out what the private and the public influences are, Adam. And on the public side, I think the real problems were associated with the Community Redevelopment Act, too many inferior loans being made out, uh, which then prompted a implicit guarantee by the federal government through Fannie and Freddie Mac. And the secondary market got exploded and everything all of a sudden went to peace at once. What's the remedy for this? You would hope you would go back to the cause, think about the Community Redevelopment Act, think about Fannie and Freddie policies. But instead, what they did is they had stuff having to do with too big to fail, including what they call systematically important financial institutions or CIFIs. And uh, the regulations of those became quite oppressive. Uh, and it also, there was no sense of scale. Uh, the largest banks in the United States are $2 trillion so dollars, the uh, SIPI number for being systematically influential is 50 million. That's two and a half percent of the large guys. These fellows don't do anything in this particular market. So there was a kind of a mismatch. Uh, the regulatory burdens become large. The compliance issues become paramount. And the level of lending from midsize and community banks goes down. Adam, I don't know what you think about this, but this does not strike me as the way you want to do business. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I have the thoughts on a lot of it. But let's start at the very beginning where you said – it can't just be about greed, greedy investment bankers, because we always have had those and we always will have those. But why couldn't it have been just a combination, a special combination of greed and, and as it was famously said at the time, irrational exuberance? It wasn't just that they were greedy. It was that they were irrationally, uh, irrationally exuberant in their greedy and irrationally complacent in the risks that they were baking into so many of these financial products that were built out of things like the housing market, things like uh, 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 credit default obligations uh, and all these other artificial derivatives that they built up around this housing market. Yeah, I agree that there's a rational exuberance, but I'm always risky about the play, uh, the uh, the pronoun. Who is the they who was doing this? I mean, I've always liked the movie Big Short um, because what it did is it suggested that part of the irrational exuberance comes when markets seem to be going up. What happens is that um, all sorts of inexperienced players come into the market, and when they come into the market, you start getting these classic bubbles. I always liked the re remark of Bernard Baruch when he said, you know, the way I became rich was 
selling too soon. So I think by the time the market went crazy, lots of people were in it who had no business doing it. They didn't understand the high-risk market, and everything starts to go into sort of strange and weird situations. Remember, the buyers of these properties who were also greedy were not large banks. They were small people uh, doing all sorts of walks of life, just going in over their head. And this whole cycle of guaranteed leverage, I think, is is what drove this. I don't know if you think it's that way, but a rational exuberance by professionals, Adam, doesn't strike me as a particularly persuasive combination. Well, speaking as somebody who was in the market buying a house at the time of the run-up to the crash, I certainly can appreciate how overheated and ridiculous the market had been at the time. It seemed like the nation had collectively lost its mind. Sometimes you wonder if we're headed in the same direction today with housing values being what they are. Um, but as Rahm Emanuel famously said, you know, let let no crisis go to waste. In the aftermath of the, of the 2008 crisis, whatever its cause were, we saw this immense move towards fundamental reorganization of the regulatory structure surrounding all of this. You mentioned a few of the things, um, systemically important financial institutions being an important one, uh, the creation of the Financial Stability Oversight Council to regulate banks and non-banks that government uh, thinks are systemically important. You threw that term out a few minutes ago, and I'm just wondering, what's your view of systemic importance in financial institutions? What's a SIFI? What should a SIFI be? Well, I mean, first of all, the word systematic is an extremely difficult world to put your foot on or you put your hand on. I mean, I'm not quite sure what it means. And, and, you know, George Schultz and the late Ken Scott used to write about it, and they didn't seem to understand what the terms meant either. Presumably what it means is that if you have something which takes place with one institution, it's going to be highly correlated with similar actions by other institutions so that there's going to be a systematic move one way or the other. But if you're talking about banks at the $50 billion level, um, there's so many of them, and they move around in such different markets, it doesn't seem to me that you're likely to see much correlation at all. So the, the real attention has to be at the top of this particular poll, and there are only four banks really that sit there at the $2 trillion level, Wells Fargo, uh, Citibank, I guess it is, um, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, and Bank of America. And, you know, I think those ought to receive special attention, but I think for the rest of it, there's nothing systematic about it. And then when the government decided to go after MetLife, an insurance company for heaven's sakes, and call that somebody who's going to be a bellwether of systematic risk, then the term loses all its meaning. So um, this is a classic illustration in which you get a nice phrase, but it doesn't clear, doesn't, isn't clear to me that you got any kind of operational way in which to deal with what it actually means. Looking back at this, I remember an, an inspector general report looking at how all the government funds have been doled out during the financial crisis. And in thinking through systemic importance. You actually had an interview with uh, Tim Geithner, the President Obama's uh, first uh, Treasury Secretary. But before that, he was head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. And in the course of the report, the Inspector General quotes Geithner as saying, basically, it's impossible to know in advance what's systemically important. It's only something you can figure out in hindsight after the crash actually happens and you try to trace these things together. It's just impossible to really know in advance, though, what is systemically important. I thought it was sort of an interesting window into the mindset of the bankers before they started trying to regulate all of this uh, on the back yeah, side. And then, of course, 
when Geithner then becomes Secretary of the Treasury, right, in 2010, that's when you get Dodd-Frank. Uh, does the term become clearer when you change offices? I don't think that it really does. I mean, I, I certainly do believe that if you do have a domino effect with one guy necessarily following another, uh, that is something that you really have to worry about. Uh, but it's not at all clear that the kind of different lending strategies that banks have are going to create that. In fact, I almost go in the opposite direction. If you want to have systematic risk, what you do is you make everybody follow the same plan and the same protocol. And if that happens and one then the protocol of the plan is bad, then everything will blow up. But if you don't have a system of regulation, you let this bank do it that way and another bank do it this way, uh, the correlations are going to be much weaker. And remember, getting rid of SIFIs doesn't mean you get rid of banking regulation. Examiners have always been there. There are all sorts of funny ratios that you have to comply with in terms of the composition of your book of business, and none of that depends upon these being SIFIs. And so the question is not whether you want to regulate, but whether or not this incremental form of regulation that we have is worth the candle given everything that's else is in place. And I still remain pretty skeptical. And in fact, as you know, Geithner's big move was to make sure that big banks overtook little banks. So you really want to create uh, systematic risk, merge the little ones into the big ones and hey, humongous ones, that seems to me to be a much greater game. So nothing in God, Frank, seems to me to make any sense. And just to throw something else out on the table, we get the Consumer Financial Protection Board, we get the Durban Amendment on Debit Cards. There's a smorgasbord rather than any consistent approach. And we've left Fannie and Freddie, which was the source of this difficulty, and the Community Redevelopment Act still pretty much in the same place that they were 10 years ago. I have a lot of thoughts on the CFPB and I have for about eight years and we can get back to that in just a little bit. But I think you really put your finger on something a moment ago when you said that that, that when government tries to funnel all the big banks and the mid-sized banks into a similar strategy, you get real correlation risk. You get real risk that everybody is making the same mistake at the same time. Uh, if nothing else, the, the government's approach to implementing Dodd-Frank in its early years really incentivized big banks to get bigger, mid-sized banks to consolidate and get bigger, if only to spread out the, uh, the regulatory burdens over a larger uh, capital base. And what you have is in some ways the most systemically important financial problem of the time being the regulation itself, funneling everybody into a correlated strategy. Well, I'm going to just say amen to that and let you go on with your next rumination. Well, so let's think about what's happening right now. Uh, in your column, you focus on a legislative reform that's happening or being bounced about in Washington with surprising bipartisan uh, support. Even uh, Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota and others recognizing that Dodd-Frank's approach to regulation of banks for systemic risk uh, is probably too heavy-handed, especially for the smaller and mid-sized yeah. banks. Yeah, and so and so, if you could just just detail what what's happening in Washington, why it is that Congress is is considering these reforms, and and who the critics are. Well, I mean, what's going on in this particular case is that people realize that if the banks get too um, heavily regulated, they won't do anything. Understand that community banks and regional banks are local presences and they have very close connections with their congresspeople and their uh, senators in all of these cases. Uh, and they've got all their eggs in one basket. And these characters know full well, that is on the political side, that if their banks go south, it means that local credit is going to go south and so forth. So what you do is you don't get the usual left-right populist business kind of switch. Adam, I think what you really end up with under these circumstances is a bunch of local people saying you're starving us from credit. So what are they going to do? They're basically going to try to 
take the leash off of the really small banks under $10 billion. Those are kind of small local community banks, a backstone of small businesses. And then to raise the $50 million billion limit up to $250 billion limit, and then to do some gradations and fancy footwork at the top. And I don't think that this is perfect, uh, but there are certainly critics out there who think that you've gone too far. And what they still do is I think they worry unduly about the correlated nature of the risk of banks, say, between 125 and 250 billion dollars. I think that that is a general mistake that you don't want to really be going in that particular direction. And also, I think the size is just too small. Um, It can't be that the same scheme of regulation is needed for one bank and for another bank, which is 40 or even eight times the size of the previous one. So I think that this is a nice sort of thing. It doesn't solve all of your problems, doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do with the large banks, doesn't tell you anything about merger policies going down the road, doesn't tell you about the relationship with domestic to international markets. But, you know, in a world of incremental changes, I think you could do a lot worse than this. You talked about community banks. For years before I joined the Hoover Institution, I was a lawyer in private practice. I was uh, part of a team of lawyers that brought the original constitutional lawsuit against uh, a lot of the Dodd-Frank reforms, including the the financial stability provisions and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And, And our main client was a West Texas community bank that saw up close all the burdens imposed by the CFPB and other parts of Dodd-Frank. Well, you better tell us what they were. Well, it was a few things. First of all, you had just the basic compliance burden. Uh, this explosion of new regulation is it's one thing for the biggest banks to in, employ a team of an army of lawyers and analysts to keep track of all these regulations. But on top of that, you had just uh, or sorry, it's one thing for the biggest banks to do that. But for the small banks to try to keep track of all this requires hiring more people and a marginal cost that actually is much more significant for the smaller banks. Second, the, the, the mindset of, of the new regulatory approach, especially on mortgages, was just fundamentally at odds with the way that small town banks do things for better and for worse. Uh, the CFPB tried to force banks to be much more quantitative, much less qualitative in, 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 in uh, handling mortgages and, and granting mortgages to customers. Uh, and it really pushed to the side everything that small town banks have known about character loans, about understanding their community, understanding the ebbs and flows of a local economy, understanding that some businesses, some approaches are better suited to uh, loans with balloon payments than others. And the CFPB tried to force through a real single-minded approach to regulation that stripped away all of that organic sort of Burkean knowledge about how banking operates in a small community. So that was disastrous. There's one other thing, though, and we raised this in our case. One other thing we raised in our case was the fact that while the the, the regulation of SIFIs, of systemically important financial institutions, does have put a lot of burden on the regulated banks, it also is a seal of approval in a way, sort of a a de facto designation that a bank is is seen as too big to fail. It's systemically important. The morning that that the the financial regulators uh, announced their first SIFI designations of AIG, GE Capital, and um, uh, Prudential, their stock prices all actually went up that morning, not down. They all their stock prices all immediately jumped. I think because the market recognized that the government was was designating these banks and non banks as effectively too big to fail, which gave those banks a, a sort of a, a, a cost of capital a cost of capital advantage over the small banks. Um, these big banks were seen as less risky. 
You know, this is, again, you know, a real problem. <clears throat> start at the small end. Uh, I think you're absolutely right when you start to say <clears throat> local knowledge really matters. Uh, what you're doing here is you're basically going back to the decentralized judgment in an intuitive Hayekian fashion as against the centralized judgment. It's a, not quite as stark as that. It may well be that many of these small banks not only made character loans but also had metrics, but their metrics were not those of the were, – were not identical to those that were put together by the central authorities. And then the question is, who's likely to have the better apparatus on this? And I would trust, I think, virtually all of these times, uh, people who are smaller rather than larger. And on your other point, you know, my situation is, yes, designation really starts to matter in these kinds of cases. And if somebody does designate you as somebody who's too big to fail, it kind of projects you as being somebody who's also going to get an implicit guarantee from the government if something starts to go down. And that means you could lower your cost of capital. Uh, In some cases, though, obviously, it's going to have the opposite arrangement. So Prudential, I think, caved immediately to the designation, and it was MetLife who decided that it would fight the similar designation. And when you actually read the decision that Judge Barkett wrote, I mean, it was just an amazing case in which the government basically decided that it was going to decide on these regulations by figuring out what the benefits of regulation were, but not really worrying very much about its cost. So this is a scissor with one blade. This is an applause with only one hand clapping and so forth. And and what really struck me and a lot of other people about this uh, was that it seemed to be so utterly primitive in terms of the way in which the thing was organized uh, that it's just impossible to see how it is that you could go through years of thinking about this stuff and come up with something as ham-handed as that. The MetLife litigation really is revealing about how all of this works in practice. I wrote a paper about this. I've been waiting to finish it while we waited to see how the MetLife case actually sorted out in the D.C. Circuit. It ended up getting voluntarily dismissed so I can finally finish my paper. But, but, but the, the title I slapped on the paper was was too big for administrative law because if you look what, at what the FSOC, this, the, the, this new interagency board that designates SIFIs, was tasked with doing under Dodd-Frank, it was, it was asked or empowered to make judgment calls that are just fundamentally antithetical to the way we normally think about the administrative process. Usually we think of agencies as identifying a problem, gathering facts, formulating a reasonable policy, and then executing. But with this, where you're dealing with what we often call black swan financial risks, you know, financial risks or other risks that are inherently unknowable, low probability, probability, never been seen before, um, the, the normal regulatory process just doesn't work in its ordinary way. And so in effect, what you have are regulators being told to go do whatever they think is necessary to go prevent risks that nobody can see coming in advance. It's just too too much power for traditional administration. So I'll be finishing that paper soon. But in the middle of of the debate over the legislation, Senator Warren said something interesting, and I'm glad you quoted it in your column. You said, or she said, this bill will pass, this reform bill, and if the Which and it will. it will. And if the banks get their way in the next 10 years or so, there will be another financial crisis. That's sort of a – I mean, what's – yeah, it's just weird. I mean, if they get their way, as if what they really want to do is to create another financial crisis so that they could go belly up. I mean, look, one of the reasons why I tend to be in favor of these reforms is I do have a fairly strong principle of financial regulation. Anything that Elizabeth Warren is for, I am against. Anything that she is against, I am for. Uh, because I've ne- I don't think there's any constancy of judgment in these particular cases, and you can't make a policy based on a sort of a set a presumption of, of resentment and and distrust. 
distrust of every institution that you're trying to regulate. And, you know, this has, of course, been something that was true under the Obama administration. The one action that it took is slightly off point, but not that far, is when they had the Madoff situation, uh, all the systems of regulation at the SEC went belly up. It was pretty clear that they were an embarrassment. I knew many people at the time who told me with a great deal of confidence that there's nobody in this kind of crazy market who every year gets a rate of return between 9 and 11 percent. Somebody's cooking the books. Somebody's playing a Ponzi scheme. Uh, you then see the SEC report. They miss everything. And then they turn around um, through Holder and so forth, and they decide to hold for $13 billion worth of stuff. Our good friends at J.P. Morgan Chase on the grounds that since they had a custodial account for paying out dividends, they should have warned everybody, and they, therefore, should be responsible. So the sort of administrative discretion that you get under the Chevron doctrine um, seems to me, when combined with institutional ignorance at the government level, to be a recipe for further disaster. And anything that would kind of curb that a little bit and bring you back to traditional banking regulation rather than to the novel stuff, which is going through Dodd-Frank's, seems to me to be a pretty good thing. Now, in our chat and in your column, you trace a lot of the last financial crisis back to the Community Redevelopment Act. Yeah. Um, which did seem to contribute so much uh, so much trouble in the rise of the crisis as, as you and Peter Wallison and others have have have, have documented uh, but I got the sense from from your column that you think the government should largely get out of the business of promoting what we used to call during the Bush years the ownership society altogether. Am I reading too much in, into this or is that, is that your basic no. position? I mean, I actually, the first or second column I ever wrote uh, for my libertarian, for Hoover Institution, uh, was essentially on that particular theme. If you start to have sort of ends in view, uh, what it does is it always messes up the way in which voluntary transactions are organized. And this was Robert Nozick's great insight when he started to talk about pattern principles. In the end, if you think that there are certain patterns that have to emerge, what you do is you necessarily have to interfere with the set of voluntary transactions that are taken between informed consensual parties because these guys will go first in one direction, then in another. And as the incremental knowledge starts to improve, the directions will start to change. And as you said, you don't know where you're beginning, you don't know where you're ending, but so long as each step on the journey seems to make sense, you keep on going. These guys actually think they know where they want to end, ownership. But there's absolutely no reason to believe for many people that ownership is better than uh, renting an apartment. Certainly, if you're talking about you know condominiums and cooperatives, it's against the situation of an apartment. If apartment house with normal leases, if you got rid of the tax advantages of home ownership under these circumstances, I think most people would really prefer to be in a situation of a lease. There's no heavy down payment. There's much more maneuverability. Uh, the competitive market will make sure that increases will be relatively predictable and small. The governance can be coherent in a single firm and not spread all over the place. The moment you subsidize home mortgages, what you do is you drive people into the wrong form of business organization. And then the moment you start to do that, you're increasing the risk of failure. Uh, just to mention one point, which has always struck me as terrible about the Community Redevelopment Act, is what they say is, we want you to do the impossible. But then again, we're Congress and we could demand anything. So we want you to increase the number of loans that you're going to make to uh, low-income and moderate-income family, but we don't want you to reduce loan quality. Now, there's no way in which you can do that. If you assume that you have loans in some kind of a lexical order and you stop them at the top, then the only place you can start to do on quality is to go down. And as you go down in quality, what you have to do is increase down payment, increase interest rates in order to keep the portfolio constant. But as I said in the column, it's easy to monitor the percentage of loans that are low in community income loans, right? 
moderate income loans, it's very difficult from the outside to monitor loan quality. And indeed, one of the things that's so odd about the CRA is that those loans tend to be exempt from the general banking oversight provision, which is yet another reason why this thing goes. So on this issue, I'm reasonably adamant that I don't like seeing credit allocated in that way. If you want to do something to help low and middle income people, what you want to do is get rid of the zoning rules, the rent control rules in order to reduce the the cost of housing by increasing the supply. And if you want to give subsidies, you give it directly to people uh, to purchase their products based on income or something of the sort. I have to tell you, running those affordable housing subsidies is no picnic. It's extremely difficult to do. Uh, but this particular strategy, I think, was really rather wrong. So I guess that's my spiel on this particular issue, Adam. Well, I, well, I like the, the the libertarian philosopher you mentioned earlier, uh, Robert Nozick, uh, just as much yeah. as the next guy. But somebody I like even more. On that point, on that point. But somebody, not, all points. not all points. But somebody I like even more than Nozick, a lot more, is Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln signed. Never met that guy. Well, he, I've heard I've heard some nice things about him. Uh, he signed the home. Homesteading. He signed the Homesteading Act, among other things, the Homesteading Act, which was a federal policy that tried to encourage people to go uh, work land, develop land uh, at a subsidized cost precisely because the government knew the value of encouraging people to put down roots and, and work land. And, and you know, the Community Re- Redevelopment Act is no Homesteading Act. Um, and I'm not saying I like the CRA specifically, but I do think there's a lot of value in the government encouraging people to, uh, to, 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 to pursue stable, well-developed communities, to really invest themselves in their communities for the sake of everybody. And that's the same reason why, why I'm actually much friendlier than you are towards zoning laws, which not all zoning laws are perfect. A lot of them are profoundly problematic, and we see the problems they, they often cause. We see the, the housing crisis in San Francisco, for example. Oh, but, yes. in many, but, 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 but in other ways, zoning laws do lay down basic principles that allow for stability, for people to, to buy a home and know more or less what sort of neighborhood they're buying into. They, they, they sink down roots along with others who are buying homes. I see all this as, as a, you know, in many ways, not always, but many ways, a real beneficial way of encouraging people to invest themselves in their neighborhoods and communities. Oh, well, now, I think we need – we're just about out of time for this show, but I think I know what our <laughs> next show is going to be on. And let me just mention a couple of points. The Homesteading Act has some serious defects associated with it. You have a fixed size, 160 acres, and it works in some locations. It doesn't work on the Western Plains. If you want to find out how crazy it is with its requirements that you plant trees, uh, the last book that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote called The First Four Years indicated how difficult it was to maintain your land when they had a series of uneconomical conditions to do it. Zoning has many other features. So what I think we probably ought to do now is since you started it, I will end it. Um, we've gone our allotted times and I suggest perhaps we might think seriously of, of doing the community zoning issue as our next show next month. What do you think about that? Uh, that sounds wonderful and terrifying, Richard. Okay, great. Au revoir, my friend. Thanks, Richard. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.